After a couple of weeks away, we return to Daniel this morning, picking up at chapter 9, which is in your Bibles in front of you at page 746. You may remember that we've been here before. A couple of weeks ago, we found Daniel, a few weeks ago, praying as he had finished reading his Bible, the prophet Jeremiah in particular, and praying the promises of God. And we return to that prayer again today to look at it from another direction. Along the way, we will, of course, find some application for our own lives and for our own prayer lives in particular. Now, um, let me add that this is the uh, second time we've come to Daniel 9, and it's the second time in a row I've had to cut down the reading between writing the bulletin on Tuesday and preaching the sermon on Sunday. There's a Simply so much richness to this chapter, I can't seem to get as far as I hoped. So, uh, but that's okay. This is God's word, and we uh, will proceed at a pace determined by his providence. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is, instead of reading through verse 27, we're going to finish at verse 21 today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a marvelous thing is your word, and we pray for the grace to receive it. Well, we pray that you will implant it deep in our hearts and that uh, we may be conformed more and more to its truth in our minds, in our hearts. And since that's the place from which we live our lives, our hearts, we pray that our lives too may be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel 1, we'll be reading verses 1 through 21. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his ways which he set before us by his servants the prophets. 
All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He's confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, Incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. We have sinned, Daniel prays. We, who? Is Daniel leading a worship service? Has Daniel called a convocation of Israeli captives for a prayer meeting? No, he's likely alone where we found him before, praying in his upper chamber, windows opened, turned toward Jerusalem. So who is this we? Is there a mouse in his pocket? We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commands and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. We have sinned against you. We have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed his voice. 
When is the last time you got down on your knees, my brothers and sisters, and prayed, we? Ah, we are Americans, aren't we? And truly a product of our culture. We don't naturally think, nor certainly pray, in terms of we. We pray, I, don't we? Why is that? Why is that that we pray, I, and not we? I think the reason is fairly simple. We are an individualistic culture. Maybe you even heard the sort of contradiction in just that statement. We are individualists. But we are. We think in terms of me and I, though it is hard for us to recognize that as a weakness on our part when looking on ourselves from within ourselves. We almost have to get outside of our own skin somehow, or maybe outside of our own earthly country, and look back over our shoulders to see just how radically individualistic we are. This has affected everything, including how we think about the church, how we think about our relationship to the church, to our brothers and sisters, and they to us. It's affected our religion. It's shot through our convictions and our actions and our prayers. When we pray in private, it never occurs to us to pray we. If someone were to ask us, like the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, it would never dawn on us to begin with our Father, or to continue, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Maybe my father, we would teach them to pray, or as a friend of mine starts all of his prayers, even when we're standing with a dozen people around the table, my God and my father. We might even go on to teach them to ask God to forgive my sins but never to forgive our sins. My brothers and sisters, this is very revealing. And what it reveals is a serious weakness in our Christianity, in mine and in yours. American Christians think in terms of personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not denying that we must have a personal relationship to Jesus Christ. We must. But we err when we stop there, when we think in terms, as we do, let's confess it, intentionally we think in terms of Jesus and me instead of Jesus and we. When God saves us in the course of his saving us, which he is continuing to do today, the salvation he is still working in us, he saves us into community. He saves us into covenant, into covenant community with one another. He saves a body, not just a a collection of individuals, 
not just a room full of lone rangers. We are, we, we are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house, says Peter in his first letter, to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That doesn't sound at all American. Jesus and me, does it? Now let me add to this quickly. I truly do think, I think that this congregation is exceptional in this way. I sense that you really do think and consider yourselves to be a family, to be bound together in covenant with one another, to be a body and not just a collection of individuals who just happen to gather for worship at the same time of the day each week. You have a sense of the spiritual union that joins us together, binds us together in Christ. But we have a ways to go in this too, don't we? Dear flock, God has called us and he has called us together. He's called us together for a purpose. He's gathered us and he's joined us in covenant union because this is the way he works. This is the way he saves. Check out scripture anywhere and you'll see that it is so. To be saved is to enter the church. It is to be joined to a body. It is to be enlisted into an army. It is to be made a member of a family. Even the psalmist, whose poetry is filled with the most intense of personal feeling and individual emotion, is all the while longing, he says, to be in the house of the Lord. There to be with the people of the Lord in the presence of the Lord Brothers and sisters, we are not all that we can be. Indeed, we are not very long in the process of sanctification, of growth in the Christian faith, until we come to see ourselves and measure our lives in terms of we, of us rather than merely me and I. In fact, I will go on to say that our individual faith is malformed, misshapen, and immature until it is formed and shaped and matured by our corporate relationships to other Christians, to our brothers and sisters in the church That's why the Bible is overflowing over the brim with commands like this. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Live in harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another. Instruct one another. Have the same care for one another. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace with one another. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Stir up one another 
to love and good works. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Encourage one another. Build one another up just as you are doing and so on. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. But how far shall we carry this? Rejoicing with those who rejoice? Yes. Weeping with those who weep? Of course. Bearing one another's burdens? Paul said so. But confessing one another's sin? Remarkably, according to Daniel's example here, to say nothing of our own Savior's lesson on prayer, yes. We are a community, my brothers and sisters. I'll say it again. We're not simply a collection of individuals. We are a covenant community bound to each other by the ties that God himself has placed between us My sin and your sin is our sin. That's the Bible's perspective. And that is why from week to week in this house on the Lord's Day and in our personal prayers throughout the week, forgive us our sin is not only acceptable, but right and fitting. In fact, it may not be too much to say that we have not truly repented of our sin until we have repented corporately, together, as a church, as a body. That's one reason why we confess our sin in worship both as individuals and as a congregation using the pronoun we. We are following the pattern of the prophets. Think of Isaiah. He finds himself in the presence of the Lord in the temple and what's on his mind? I'm a man of unclean lips, he says. But what does he go on immediately to recognize and to confess? I live among a people of unclean lips. It was on the front of his mind. That's the way he thought. That's the way biblically informed and molded minds think. They think of I, yes, but of we. Later on in his book, Isaiah says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned uh, everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us. All. Like Daniel, Isaiah was had... had Both in mind. I'm sorry, like Isaiah Daniel did in verse 20. His sin and their sin. Verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight. We have not confessed our sins, brothers and sisters. We've not confessed them fully until we've confessed our sin. Now, you may not like that idea very much. 
I didn't do that. I didn't do that despicable thing that he did or that she did. He did it. Not I. His sin. Her sin. Not mine. Oh, no. You may not have caused or created that particular burden, that particular sin. And you may not be culpable for that particular sin that someone else in the church committed per se. You will give answer for your own sins done individually in the body, whether good or evil, the scripture tells us as much. But remember this, my brothers and sisters, we are called to bear one another's burdens too. And what greater burden does any one of us bear in this life than his sin or hers? As I say, you may not have caused or created that particular burden that your brother or sister bears, but that doesn't exempt you from carrying it with him or her. Martin Luther came very close to making the same point in his theology of the cross as he wrote that those who follow Christ must be prepared to suffer for the sins of others. Now, this runs right across the grain of our individualistic American culture. Our every man for himself mentality. But where scripture and culture conflict, it is culture, not scripture, that must yield. We're no longer to conform to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Well, let's renew our minds with Scripture, about this. His sins, her sins, their sins are our sins. None of us is in an island, is an island to himself. None of us. Just imagine if Jesus had towed the American line, the individualistic zeitgeist, the spirit of our day, Refusing to take responsibility to himself for the sins of others. Imagine where you and I would be today. Following him, my brothers and sisters, will mean for us doing exactly what he did. Making your sin and your sin ours. Now, what does that mean for us in practical terms? Well, it means a few things. I want to mention two of them in particular. First, it means that we do not enjoy the luxury of looking down on others or on others' sins as if they're worse than our own nor upon other sinners as if they were worse than we. This strips us of that luxury. We surrender all ground for pride. Listen to the way my friend and 
former Professor Brian Chapel puts it. When we truly perceive our responsibility to bear and confess the sins of others, then cynicism, sarcasm, and ridicule die in the church. Instead of objectifying others as sinners unlike us, standing apart from them to judge them, we instead get in the boat of need with them. Embrace them as brothers and sisters, equally in need of the grace we have received without any deserving, and in so doing, truly learn about the nature of God's mercy for them and for us. In essence, what we begin to learn is that living in grace requires giving ourselves for others. Living for them by confessing need with and for them. So first, we lose the luxury, if it ever were such a thing, of looking down on others as if they were worse than we. Second, when we learn to confess our sins, not his sins, not her sins, but our sins, the door of ministry opens. The door of ministry to one another opens for us. We stop condemning others and we start carrying them. Or rather, helping them to carry their burdens while they help us to carry ours. We find that we have something to say to them in their suffering. As long as we hold our brothers and sisters at arm's length so that we have enough room to look down our noses at them, we have nothing to say. We have no ministry to exercise, only to condemn. But when we realize that we are, as the expression has it, all of us in this together, then we have the authority You see, to speak a word of peace and of blessing. And by the way, in some, the very gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ into their hearts and they into ours. This works both ways. We can bring the mutual comfort that we ourselves have received by the forgiving grace of God that has rescued us and continues to rescue us from our sin. My brothers and sisters, it hardly matters. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you've actually done. Or whether what you've actually done are the same things that your brothers and sisters in Christ have actually done. Or whether they've actually done or not done the despicable things that you have done. We've all broken God's law. As James has it, we've all broken it at one point, so we've all broken it all. You may have heard the expression that there is only one person in the world who cannot say, well, at least I'm not as bad as he is. 
And perhaps that's in a way true. But it is also true in another sense that none of us can say, at least I'm not as bad as he. None of us can say that. How many here who have not physically taken the life of a fellow human being are therefore not guilty of murder? Jesus says if we have hated a brother in our hearts, we're just as guilty. Who in this room would dare to say that he or she is guiltless of adultery when a lustful look renders one just as guilty in God's eyes as the act itself. We confess together from time to time in this house of worship, using the words of Augustine, O Lord, what evil have we not done? Or if there is evil that we've not done, what evil is there that we've not spoken? And if there is any that we've not spoken, what evil is there that we have not thought to do? Oh, dear church family, temple of our Lord Jesus Christ, body of Jesus, there has never been a congregation nor will there ever be a congregation more qualified to say than we. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We are guilty. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. We have turned away from the commandments and rules of the Lord. We have not listened to the servants, the prophets, who spoke in the name of God to our kings and princes and fathers and to all the people of the land. We have sinned against you. We have rebelled against the Lord. We have not obeyed his voice. We. And the more we say such things from our hearts, confessing our sin, the more we will truly minister to one another. Sinners to sinners. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we will bear one another's burdens, including the burdens of our sins, until we find ourselves still together, still arm in arm, at the table of the Lord. And on that day, there will be no more burdens to bear. Even mutual burdens. No more sins to confess. Yet we will still be we. Having carried one another. Even to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Amen.